A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw, and their interpretation. The visions of my head, as I lay in bed, were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, 
under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Almighty Father, um, Nebuchadnezzar says that you are uh, a, a king who's able to humble those who are proud. Uh, and um, that's a like really scary thing 
because uh, nobody who's proud likes to be humbled. On the other hand, it's a really great thing because those who are proud really need to be humbled. And humility is a better place. And so, Father, I pray that you will, um, that you'll humble us and that you will humble us in such a way that it leads to the kind of joy that Nebuchadnezzar was just, was just talking about. He starts praising you. He, he's happy about it after the fact. Um, so will you do that? And will you work in us um, the thing that needs to be done in every one of us so that we can see you clearly and really know you for real? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, you can be seated. Um, and uh, it's helpful, long reading, yeah. Well done, David. Um, that, was, that was, you get a prize or something in heaven. Um, um, but tur turn back to page seven, eight, nine, and 10. Anyways, um, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. And, and one of the things about the book of Daniel is this, it is, it's a really uh, sustained and, to my view, insightful critique of power, of human power. Um, almost every one of the stories in the book of Daniel, have you noticed that? Almost every one of the, the stories in the book of Daniel has to do with, with human power. And in particular, there's typically an unveiling of the misuse of human power. It happens in almost every story, and you can see it in this one in particular. And when it unveils uh, the misuse of human power, um, the book of Daniel doesn't just say, hey, look, there's stuff that's wrong. I mean, we can all probably see that. But the book of Daniel is designed to unveil, on the one hand, the misuse of human power, and on the other hand, hold up an alternative, hold up something better, a better vision. Uh, and that better vision uh, is something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. If you understand the kingdom of God in the scriptures, then you'll understand how power is meant to be used. We'll explain that in just a second. But, but this idea that the book of Daniel unveils something of the misuse of human power, I, I think that makes it extremely contemporary, doesn't it? Uh, because if you look at a lot of the things that most provoke us, if you look at the, most of the things that most alarm us, around a lot of it, I don't know, all of it, a lot of it uh, can be boiled down to uh, terrible abuses of power. Um, there's a war. There's a bunch of them going on around the world. Um, scary, frightening misuses of power. But then closer to home, if you look in your family life, the things that most uh, wound you from your background Many, much of it, am I wrong? Much of it was a misuse of power. The relationships between men and women and all that goes along with that is very often tied up with a misuse of power. Uh, some of us are very suspicious of the church. Am I right? Suspicious of the church, suspicious of, you know, whatever it is, institutionalized Christianity, whatever the case may be, however you want to, whatever name you place on it, very often the things that people are alarmed about within the church uh, boil down to the experience of abuse or the misuse of power. The misuse of power is a big deal. That's what I'm trying to say. But on the other hand, it's not like we can just say, oh, power is bad, because that doesn't work either. It, I don't know. It's a little bit like fire. Fire can burn you. On the other hand, it's great in its place, right? 
So it seems to me that we've got to learn, we've got to gain some wisdom on how do we identify the appropriate use of human power uh, and how do we unmask the misuse of human power? How do we understand these things? And Daniel gives us some insight and gives us some insight in this reading by unmasking the madness of Nebuchadnezzar's misuse of power and replacing it with God's use of power and in particular this idea of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that's not yet clear. Come with me into the text and we'll try to make it clear. Um, let me uh, back up and remember the context. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, guy with a big long name, uh, he is king of Babylon. You can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and you can see his artifacts from his reign. I think like his, like his signature is there or something like that, a little seal of his, something like that. So he was a historical figure, uh, ruled Babylon, and he is just at the top of his game. He's at this point defeated everybody around. Babylon is in modern day Iraq, um, and he has importantly defeated the kingdom of Israel. And uh, when he defeated the kingdom of Israel, he took a bunch of their, uh, their, their leadership as uh, hostages, and then he hired some of them to work for him. Daniel is one of those Israelites who's hired to work or required to work for Nebuchadnezzar. Anyways, he's at the top of his game, and he has a dream. He has a bad dream. It's a terrible dream. Scary dream. Uh, people in power are often insecure, scared. Uh, I think it says, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, something like that. And this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has frightens him. And so he calls his staff and he says, hey, what does this dream mean? None of them know. But finally, Daniel shows up and Daniel can explain the dream. And according to Daniel, when he analyzes Nebuchadnezzar's dream, apparently he says something like this. It's, it's a, the dream, he doesn't say it this way, but the dream is a, is a collision. It's a collision between two kings and two kingdoms. It's a collision between the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other. And the dream describes what it's like when they come into contact. Now just think about the dream for a second. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees in his dream a big tree. It's a giant tree. In fact, it's so big that the whole world can see it. I don't know how that works, but you know, it's a dream. And this dream, it's not only huge, but it also is a place of refuge almost. Uh, it's a place that produces life. It's a, it's a place under which uh, you can flourish. It's a pretty amazing tree. And trees uh, in the ancient world, very often they were used as symbols, uh, symbols of various things. Sometimes in some cultures, trees were symbols of the whole cosmos, of the whole world. The whole world would be described as a great tree. But then in other cultures, uh, trees would signify or represent kingdoms and empires and regimes. And you can see why. Uh, trees, I mean, trees are amazing things, right? Who doesn't like trees, right? Um, and especially really old trees, really big trees, they can end up sort of uh, facilitating a kind of micro ecosystem around them. You ever seen that in an old forest? And in the minds of some of the ancient empires, the tree was a perfect image of their power. So that uh, Babylon, the empire of Babylon, or the, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, was like this big eternal tree that would make everything work uh, for those under its power. 
Now, when I describe it that way, it's like, what's not to like, yes? The thing is, Daniel, as he's listening to this dream, he's listening to this dream as an Israelite. And as an Israelite, he has a very powerful story in his mind. Because he knows about another tree, a tree at the very beginning of Daniel's scriptures, of our scriptures, the very beginning of the Bible, this book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, in the very early chapters, there's a tree, it's called the tree of life. And on the face of it, the tree of life at the beginning of the Bible looks an awful lot like Nebuchadnezzar's tree. It's ancient, it's there from the very beginning, and it is meant to impart life. It's called the tree of life. It's meant to impart life to those who eat of its fruit. But there's a difference, and Daniel knows there's a difference. The tree at the beginning of the Bible belongs to another king. Uh, it represents another kingdom. It doesn't belong to Babylon. It doesn't belong to Nebuchadnezzar. It belongs uh, to the God who created everything, to the God of Israel. And the tree of life in the beginning of the Bible represents the kingdom of God. So in Genesis, if you're living in the Garden of Eden and you can eat from the tree of life, it signifies, among other things, it signifies trusting God as your king, as your as your leader, as your authority, and flourishing, trusting in him and not in yourself, trusting in him and living under his loving rule. It's an image of the kingdom of God. And in the book of Genesis, the promise is that as we live under God's loving rule, trusting in his leadership and kingship, as we trust him, human life is going to flourish. And one of the ways that human life will flourish is that we will be given authority and power within this world. But we are to use that authority and that power as ambassadors of God, as ambassadors of his kingdom. So, so that we are to represent God, not ourselves or our authority, but God and his authority in such a way that the world around us can continue to flourish and, and be cultivated. And, and all this is in Daniel's head. It's all part of his story. And therefore, when Daniel hears about Nebuchadnezzar's tree, and especially when he gets to that point in the, the dream where the tree is, is, is cut down and it falls, Daniel knows that the tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a rival tree. Nebuchadnezzar's tree is a rival, phony, false tree of life. And once again, Daniel knows all about rival, phony, false trees of life. Why do I say that? Well, remember, the tree of life in Genesis is all about trusting God and flourishing under his loving rule. Whenever we set up a rival tree of life, typically what we're doing is we're doing this. We're declaring our autonomy from God and we're living as our own kings. Instead of trusting God and his goodness and his power, we're trusting ourselves and our power over and against God. And Daniel knows all about rival trees because it's part of his own his, uh, national background. As a young man, Daniel was there in Jerusalem when his whole nation collapsed. 
And if you ask Daniel, and later on in chapter 9 it becomes quite clear, Daniel understood that the reason his nation collapsed is because they had set up a series of rival trees. Each of the successive kings of Israel, almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them, had, so to speak, uh, uh, declared their autonomy from God and trusted in their own power and their own authority and their own rule, and they had, so to speak, created alternative trees of life. But Daniel knew where that road led because he was there when his whole nation collapsed. And therefore, Daniel understood that manufactured rival trees of life were not really trees of life at all. They were trees of death. And I think that's why Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 27. Daniel interprets the dream for him. He says, just, so to speak, just like Israel's false trees were cut down, so Nebuchadnezzar, yours will be too. And then he says, verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, here comes the application, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed so that there may be perhaps a lengthening to your prosperity. Now, it's important to see that um, the point is not that Nebuchadnezzar's power was intrinsically evil. The problem is that Nebuchadnezzar had made his power a substitute for God. Nebuchadnezzar had, so to speak, elevated himself to be his own final authority. He had replaced God with himself. Uh, in the Christian tradition, in the Bible, uh, there's a word for that. It's called idolatry. And very often, we replace God with a substitute um, because in some ways, we think it's going to give us power, control, achievement maybe, success. But the trouble is this, when we reject God, even unconsciously, and we elevate ourselves and we trust in our power, then it almost always, eventually, leads to uh, oppression and injustice and abuse and exploitation and what the Bible calls sin. And you think, no, it's not, not going to do that in me. Well, Daniel knew that it, every single king of Israel who rejected God and trusted in his own autonomy and his own power, all of them at the beginning said, oh, no, this is going to work great. But generation after generation, it led to those things. It led to oppression and 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 injustice and abuse and sin and eventually the whole nation fell apart and so coming back to this story there's a terrible irony and the irony is that nebuchadnezzar thought that his empire was a tree of life that was going to just make the world great but daniel can see that it was in actual fact a tree of death and it's important to see that God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream, and then God gave Nebuchadnezzar Daniel to help him understand what it means, um, because God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see where the road he was on leads to. And I want you to see the grace here, the grace of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is always unmasking the madness of our misuse of power. And the first way the kingdom of God does that is through what we call God's word. God communicates 
so that we can be warned to take a different path. God sent Nebuchadnezzar the dream as a warning. God sent Nebuchadnezzar Daniel to make the, clear, the meaning clearer. And the purpose is, and this is always what God is doing when he communicates with us through what we call his word, is he's summing Nebuchadnezzar and us to shift allegiance from himself and his power to God and to God's authority. And this is always the first way that God's kingdom unmasks the madness of our sin. And Emmanuel, this is one of the reasons why we're so committed to reading the Bible. It's why we spent a lot of time today and every week reading these long stories because we have an expectation and i know for some of us this sounds audacious but it's been happening for th literally thousands of years we have an expectation that god through his word through this book through this message that god is going to warn us and awaken us to what we cannot figure out for ourselves and i want to encourage you to expect that to happen but then go back to nebuchadnezzar because what happens is he rejects the warning He's got a year to ponder the dream, but a year later, he is still worshiping himself, and he thinks he's a little god. Look at verse 30. He goes out, and he looks over the skyline, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power in his residence, he thinks that's pretty good, for the glory of my majesty? He's in love with his own power. And that's the moment when the kingdom of God makes the next move. And this time, the kingdom of God breaks in not by speaking and communicating, but rather by acting. God takes away his sanity. And he causes them to act like an animal of some type. And again, God and his kingdom is unmasking the madness of misused power. He's unmasking the madness of sin. And, and just think with me about how this works. Nebuchadnezzar thought that his regime was a tree of life. Uh, however, Daniel could see that through its oppression and injustice, it was actually a tree of death. Nebuchadnezzar thought that his power made him like a little god. But in actual fact, it was making him more like a beast. See, sin, what the Bible calls sin, is always a way of rejecting God and replacing God with ourselves. Instead of God being king, we want to be a kings ourselves. We want to take God's place. We want to pretend like we are godlike based upon our own resources. But the problem is, it always backfires. We try to take God's place and, so to speak, be more than human. But what happens is it backfires and we end up acting less humane. Less human. Because we end up being increasingly self-centered because self is the thing I'm trusting, so I've got to be centered upon self. And as I'm more selfish, I'm more narcissistic. And as I'm more narcissistic, I'm more captivated by my desires. And eventually, my priority on my own desires begins to rush out towards other people. And I tell you, it's not safe for them. And we become exploitative, and we become cruel, and we become abusive. And the sin is smoke in God's nostrils. God takes Nebuchadnezzar's sanity away. 
to show him outwardly what he was already beginning to become inwardly. So the kingdom of God unmasks the madness of our misused power first by speaking, warning, turn the other direction. But secondly, often the kingdom of God will let us taste the bitterness of the fruit we think will give us life. If we prefer to build our own false rival trees of life, and if we refuse to listen to God's warning, then sometimes God will let us taste the bitter fruit of our own false trees. And it's not cruelty. It hurts. But it is, it is actually a kindness. Because God lets us taste the bitter fruit of our sin uh, so that we can be roused to desire a better tree and a better fruit. And I don't say any of this lightly. I'm sure this was horrible for Nebuchadnezzar. But sometimes the kindest thing God can do is to disrupt our prosperity. And sometimes the kindest thing God can do is to deny us the happiness that we think we want. And sometimes the kindest thing God can do is let us taste the misery of our sin. Sometimes we have to discover that the tree we thought would give us life was really only dealing in death. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar had to discover. He had to taste the misery of his own bitter fruit. And I wonder if you can identify with that. I wonder if you've ever tasted the bitter fruit of something you thought would give you life. That experience of misery is horrible and a kindness. Because that can be the moment when the kingdom of God unmasks the madness that keep, keeps us attached to the phony alternative trees. But of course, even as I say that, it raises a question. Because when you come to find that the tree you thought would give you life is in actual fact just giving you death and probably exporting death to people around you, when you find that out, what do you do? It begs the question, if this is a tree of death, I thought it was a tree of life, if I'm no longer believing the marketing, then where do I go to find the real thing? And how am I ever going to recognize it? If I've misused power and if I have sinned against myself and others and against God, and if I have distorted my humanity out of shape, then where do I go and how do I make it right? Because the misery can only be a gift if there's hope of a better future. So what is that? Well, turn over to that little tiny reading. We had a really long reading, we had a little tiny reading. Turn over to the little tiny reading. Um, this is Jesus talking. And this is hundreds of years later. But remember that Jesus is steeped in Daniel's story and in the story of Genesis. And he's talking about the kingdom of God too. And do you notice the image that he uses? He talks about a tree. Curious, isn't it? It's not a big and impressive tree, at least not at the beginning. It's a little tiny tree. It's small, starts the size of a mustard seed. And it's one that's really easy to miss. But the thing is, this tree that Jesus is describing, when that seed gets planted, when it gets buried, it grows and it becomes something big. 
It grows and it becomes bigger than all the other plants. And after it's planted and it grows, it come, becomes a place where even the birds can flourish. What's going on? Well, Jesus is claiming to be the one who restores the true tree of life. He came to establish a real tree of life, not one like Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. He did, Jesus didn't come uh, wielding coercive power. Um, he doesn't grasp control and carpet bomb his opponents to get them to submit. His kingdom, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is a kingdom that grows only after it's buried. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Romans and the uh, religious leaders of the day, they joined forces and they hung Jesus up on a tree of death, on a cross. And of course, the reason they hung him up there is because that was the outward expression of their inward idolatry of power. And yet when Jesus hung up there upon the cross, God was doing something remarkable. God was transforming that tree of death, that cross, into a whole new tree of life. Or put differently, when Jesus was buried in death, in that moment the kingdom of God was being planted and was beginning to grow. And here's the remarkable thing about this new tree of life that you can see at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is a unique tree of life because it's a tree of life that imparts flourishing specifically to the guilty. If you go back to the tree of life in the beginning of the Bible, once Adam and Eve have rejected God, they're out and they can't get back. There's no path back to the tree of life for the guilty at the beginning of the Bible. And yet here Jesus comes and he dies, and he dies so that he can give us a tree of life that is specifically designed to impart life, not to the innocent, but to the guilty. And that takes us back to the question we asked for before. If I have tasted the bitterness of my sin and the death of the tree I thought would give me life, then what do I do now? If I have sinned, how can I be restored? And the answer is, Jesus and the tree of life he gives. Because Jesus' tree of life opens up a door of amnesty. Out of our guilt and our misery and our addiction to our trees of death and back into the kingdom of God. And the key, Emmanuel, the key is to find your refuge in the kingdom. The real one. And you can see what that looks like when you look at Nebuchadnezzar. So go back, go back to Nebuchadnezzar and look at verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says this, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned, and I blessed the Most High. Now, consider the image of his eyes looking up to heaven. Uh, just before he lost his sanity, where was he looking? Do you remember? He was looking at his skyline. He was looking at himself. But now, he's he was looking at the false tree of life, which was actually a tree of death. He was looking at his own power. But now, now he looks away from himself and he looks back to God. And he praises not his power or his achievement, but God's power and God's achievement. And Emmanuel, that's how the kingdom of God works. It unmasks the madness of our misused power. It unmasks the madness of our sin. First, through the word of God. Second, through letting us taste the bitter fruit of our trees of death. 
but then finally by bringing us to a place of restoration. And that restoration happens when we trust not ourselves, but God's grace and power. And when God restores us, then Emmanuel, he sends us back into the world. We, it's, and he gives us a commission and a job to use the power and the influence which he has imparted to us and which he's given to us. He sends us out as his representatives in the world, not to promote our power or our agenda, but to promote and to be ambassadors of a better king and a higher power, to be the ambassadors of God of love and justice. And again, you can see that in Nebuchadnezzar. The whole chapter, this whole long reading is his own testimony. This whole reading is Nebuchadnezzar himself pointing away from himself, away from his false tree, and back to God and his kingdom. And Emmanuel, that's what it looks like to use human power responsibly. That's, that's, what, you, that's what you get to do at your work and at your home, to point away from yourself and to trust in something bigger and to represent a better king. And as the Lord does that, as the Lord continually draws us to see our own misuse of power and draws us back into continual fellowship and restoration through Christ's cross, then he's going to shape us and renew us to be gifts in this world who can be ambassadors of a better kingdom in a world that desperately needs to know that one exists. So let's do that. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.